Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. Early voting for the primary election is already underway, and on this week's episode, reporter Humberto Sanchez and Sean Galanca talk about the house races here in Nevada. We dig into the lay of the land and hear from some of the candidates themselves. That first segment is so long, so after that, we'll wrap up the show with an interview I did with U.S. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg, who recently visited Las Vegas to tout the infrastructure bill that passed last year. All righty. Well, I am here with reporter Sean Galanca and reporter Humberto Sanchez, and we are talking about house races today, you know, the House of Representatives. So thank you both for joining me. Happy to be here. Yeah, good to be here, Joey. Yeah. And so there's a lot to go over. We've got a lot of a lot of people to talk about. We've been doing editorial board interviews with some of the candidates. I'm sure we'll have more as we get closer to the general, but we're getting closer to the primary right now. So let's just start with, with CD1, which is Dina Titus's district. She's our current representative in that district. That kind of is the the Las Vegas, the center of Las Vegas, right, Sean? Yeah, although, I mean, it was altered with redistricting to now include Boulder City and a little bit more rural parts of the county, obviously had some of those Democratic voters shifted into districts three and four. So that's really the big change that we're seeing with the district this year. And why Dina Titus was so upset is because she was in such a, a safely blue Democratic district for for so many years. And now uh, it's one that Republicans nationally think that that they could pick up. What what is Titus kind of running on right now? And then she's also has a Democratic challenger, isn't that right? Yeah. So she has a a progressive challenger in Amy Valella. She has ties to to the very progressive wing in the party, like Cori Bush and Nina Turner, Bernie Sanders. And, you know, Dina Titus running on her own experience, her own ability as a legislator, as a lawmaker. And so we're seeing that play out. And Dina Titus has a lot of the backing of the the Democratic establishment. Yeah, Dina Titus is the candidate for the Democrats here in D.C. They don't see much of a threat coming from Vilela. And basically the the overall strategy from the, the DCCC, the campaign arm of the House Democrats, is to basically campaign on everything that's been passed. The American Rescue Plan is a big one. The infrastructure law. The, the Democrats feel that they've done a lot of legislating and brought home the bacon to people's districts that they can go and say, look, there are more bridges, there are more roads coming our way. So uh, they think that that's a winning message. And so you're going to see that from all the Democrats in, in Nevada between now and November. And so what were some of the things that Valella was running on? Because we actually had a conversation with her a couple weeks ago. Yeah, so that included Medicare for all. It included the Green New Deal. A lot of popular progressive policies, or at least popular within that wing of the Democratic Party. Well, I definitely support a Green New Deal. I mean, like I said, we are we are feeling the brunt of climate change here in Las Vegas. I mean, I just saw a report that homes, some homes in Henderson may have an interruption of water because our water levels are becoming so low. And with the Green New Deal, it would not only bring good paying union jobs to this for to this state, but it would also address our housing crisis that we're facing Um, in the Green New Deal. We're talking about building, you know, uh, affordable housing units. So right now, we don't need to be building out and and doing endless sprawl into our desert. We need to be building up, not out. 
Um, it would also you know, address uh, bringing in possibly more industries into this state where we could, people could have a choice of whether they want to work in a casino or not, right? And we know that you know, Nevadans are feeling the effects of climate change in their pocketbooks. I think a lot of the issues that I'm running on, they cross party lines. The majority of Americans, they support a universal health care system. The majority of Americans want the representative to vote for a Green New Deal. Titus is a loyal Democrat, right? She, she's close to Nancy Pelosi, and see, she votes the party line for the most part. I'm not sure that there's that much daylight between Villela and Titus, but Titus has the experience. Titus is also in line possibly to lead the aviation subcommittee and the transportation committee in the House. That's a big deal for Nevada that relies on so much tourism for its economy. I think with, with some of those differences between the two candidates is what Valella frames this issue as is that Dina Titus isn't doing enough in those areas. She's not had an you know, opponent uh, from either the, the Democrat or Republican side um, to have to uh, really defend that seat to. This was a, a real opportunity to be a lead in progressive, in a progressive voice and to be a true fighter for a change that's necessary. But, you know, she declined to do so and has instead used, embraced that security as an excuse to kind of take her foot off the pedal and uh, not work to make sure that she is engaging her base and, and motivating them to get out to the polls and vote. And so also looking at the Republican race going on over in CD1, what does the primary look like for that? In, in this District 1 Republican primary, there's really a, a wide mix of political newcomers, a lot of inexperienced Republican candidates in terms of higher office. And so there's a lot of people that have thrown their hat in the ring, a lot more than we normally see in District 1 because of redistricting and because Republicans really do think they have a chance to win this district. Normally, the voter registration advantage was just so far in favor of Democrats. But now District 1 and District 4 are actually pretty similar in terms of the, the partisan split between Republicans and Democrats. So one name to watch out for in that Republican primary is Carolina Serrano. She, she previously led Hispanic outreach efforts for the Trump campaign in Las Vegas. She has close ties to Adam Laxalt. She's campaigned for him. We've really seen her align with that, that Trump wing of the Republican Party. And Humberto, in situations like this, where the, the Republican Party thinks that they have a chance to you know, unseat a, a Democrat that was formerly pretty safe, do they have some sort of strategy, especially because this year they are expecting to see more wins than normal? Yeah, I mean, the, the Republican Party sees red everywhere they look, pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> They're essentially going to double down on inflation, on gas prices, on basically bread and butter issues that, that really animate voters on both sides of the aisle. And so they're going to be painting Titus and all the other Democrats as enabling President Biden, who has terrible favorability ratings in the state, to enable him to tank the economy, for lack of a better phrase. You're going to see uh, everything is going to be Biden's fault. If you're a Democrat, you're a Biden supporter, and therefore you don't deserve to remain in office. All right, well, let's let's move on to the, the next district, District 2, CD2, which is the lone Republican in Nevada's delegation. CD2 is basically the top half of Nevada. <laughs> it's the Reno, Carson City, and then a lot of rural Nevada. Uh, and that is currently held by Republican Mark Amaday. Does he have any challengers right now? 
Yeah, he has one really key challenger, and that is Danny Tarkanian, who he's mounted several uh, unsuccessful bids for Congress over the past decade, the past couple decades, really. He's run for office a lot. And just recently, he became a Douglas County commissioner, but he's already moving on, looking to try to get into Congress yet again. We've seen him run for races, though, down south before. And so this time he's moved up north. And that's something that Amade has attacked him on, saying, oh, you don't know this community community as well as I have. I've been here longer. I know these people. And so uh, that's a, a point of divergence between the two. But Tarkanian, on his own right, has attacked Amade for not being conservative enough being a bit of a rhino, as we've seen those attacks fly between Republicans and across primaries in Nevada. Yeah, and we actually talked to both Amade and Tarkanian. Welcome to the Nevada Independence On the Record interview with Congressman Mark Amade. These are tough times, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, anything else like that. Having some experience in how Washington works, but more so having a lot of experience in how Nevada's original congressional district works, you've learned the ropes. So when you sit there and look at that and you say, well, is it a good time to change hands? And am I still excited about the work? Do I still think the work is important? Yeah. The culture in Washington may not be that impressive, but it's one of those things where I think it's time for a steady hand at the, on the tiller, if you will. And uh, I've been fortunate enough to be elected six times. And so it's like, hey, uh, you know, we, we think we've got a good system in place. We think we're doing good work. We think when the chips are down, we can produce good results. And so we're going to see if the voters agree with us. Amade defended the initial COVID relief package, saying Congress needed to get protective gear for healthcare workers and testing started, and that businesses needed the Paycheck Protection Program. But he expressed concern about what he called agenda-driven spending in the months that followed. It was phenomenally important to, to provide those payroll protection loans that kept people working and businesses open um, while everything was shut down. And so, yeah, I think that was the right thing to do. But subsequently, you know that old saying, you never want to waste a good crisis because you can get things done that you couldn't get done before. And it's like, yeah, but if that's agenda-driven spending, then obviously that's a problem. The infrastructure bill and then the Build Back Better, my reading of them was, is this is a bunch of agenda stuff, and quite frankly, it's trillions more dollars, and we maxed out, if you will, the credit card limit in terms of the initial reaction to COVID. The problem is the subsequent spending was, was a lot more about Green New Deal or trying to federalize elections or stuff that was, I, I refer to those things as agenda things, and it's like, no, I'm not voting for that. Amade also went on the record on Roe versus Wade, saying that he's been pro-life when he could make a vote, but respected the voter-passed initiative in the state that protected some abortion rights. He also said he wanted voter ID, more aid for Ukraine in terms of sending them military equipment, talked about Trump's border wall as a piece of the puzzle to help immigration issues, he did not support repealing the Affordable Care Act, and he touched on climate change, saying, What are the solutions that we can do instead of, I want to go to war with oil companies, I want to shut down pipelines, I want to do all this stuff, which sounds great for an agenda and may play great at a rally, but it's like, what have we really done for our airshed? The interview with Congressman Mark Amaday touched on a lot of other topics, and you can find the whole conversation on our YouTube channel. But now we'll hear a bit from our other interview with Danny Tarkanian, the Douglas County Commissioner, running against Amaday in the primary. 
why do you think you deserve to be elected over incumbent Mark Amaday? Well, as you mentioned, Nevada has one safe Republican seat. It's in Congressional District 2. They're very conservative there. And Mark Amaday has been anything but a conservative voice uh, for those people. If you look at every major vote he's taken, dealing with every major issue that those vo the voters in CD2 care about, Mark's been on the opposite side. He's voted to give citizenship and benefits to illegal immigrants, which 87% of the people we're speaking with are against. He's voted to give $600 million to Planned Parenthood. He's voted um, to give $500 million to build a wall in the Middle East instead of building, spending money to build a wall here in the United States. He was the first GOP congressman to support President Trump's first impeachment inquiry. All of these things that people in CD2 do not agree with. I believe very strongly in these type of conservative principles. I believe very strongly in America first principles. Tarkanian took aim at the federal COVID relief packages, saying that there was a lot of waste that he believed had contributed to national debt and rising inflation. During the interview, Tarkanian also voiced his support for school choice, a phrase common along the Republican campaign trail. I, I think schools need to be funded, but they need to have some type of checks and balances, meaning you, if you have competition within the school system, and this is uh, the school choice argument, is you're going to get a better product at a lower cost. Like Amade, Tarkanian shared his stance on a number of other topics, including abortion, the war in Ukraine, and immigration. You can watch the full interview by going to the Nevada Independent on YouTube. Amade sits on the Appropriations Committee, so he oversees the entire budget. He helps oversee the entire budget. And, and Tarkanian has attacked him over voting for what we call omnibus budget bills, which are basically the Congress has a tough time passing all 12 bills individually. And usually at the end of the year, they'll package them all together and it'll be a mishmash of bills. And many appropriators vote along with them to pass them along. And Amadei has done that in the past few cycles, but he's quite comfortable with his record, especially on abortion and on gun control. He's totally in line with the party on that. Amadei has, has really said it. it's time for, for a steady hand on the wheel. It's time to, to just keep keep this power that we have in Congress rather than putting in a, a freshman lawmaker who might not be able to do as much for Nevada. That's something he distinguished between the two. While Tarkanian, he's really aligned himself with Trump, America first ideals. And like Humberto was saying, he's, he's been critical of Amadei for votes on, on federal spending bills. So now moving on to CD3, which is the incumbent Susie Lee, a Democrat. That is the southern tip of the state, the, the point right at the bottom of Nevada. Yeah, well, Susie Lee, she's running for her third term. She's an education philanthropist. She's been an, an advocate for, for education and no real challenger in the primary. So she's just waiting to see who comes out of this, this Republican primary. And the one who looks like it's she's going to come out of the primary now is April Becker. She's a real estate attorney in Las Vegas. And back in 2020, she ran for a state Senate seat and nearly defeated the Democratic Senate Majority Leader Nicole Cannizzaro before just very narrowly losing that race by a few hundred votes. And Becker, she's earned the backing of the Republican establishment, including uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, a lot of support from the NRCC third-ranking House Republican, Elise Stefanik. So really a lot of those establishment Republicans have been backing her. And she's got a few challengers who 
fall along the Republican spectrum, I'd say. I mean, one challenger, Noam Algieri, he's, he's quite the radical. He's raised the alarm on a lot of conspiracy theories, such as the Chinese military creating COVID to cripple the American economy. Most recently, he made statements about shoot mass shootings in Ovalde and Buffalo being a ploy to take firearms away from law-abiding American citizens. And so that's really on one, one wing. And we have a couple of other Republican candidates in the race, including John Kovacs, who has really aligned with the, the Trump wing of the party and America first ideals. And he's been a proponent of, of building the border wall. But Becker, she has the endorsements and she has significantly more money than any other Republicans in the race. Susie no Lee has one Democratic challenger. Uh, his name is Randall Hines. He's really running as a, a moderate Democrat. I, I believe he aligns himself with also something called the middle party. He hasn't really raised any significant money or, or any significant attention. But beyond that, you know, this is Susie Lee is well on her way to the general election in November. And, and just in speaking with her from time to time, she, she's very confident in her and her record. She's she thinks abortion is going to be a big deal in her race. She's called out April Becker as her likely uh, opponent, as someone who does not support abortion rights. And that's something that she believes is going to animate voters. And she's also styled herself as more of a moderate Democrat. She was she belongs to something called the Problem Solvers Caucus, which is a group of equally divided Republicans and Democrats who put out plans and try to solve problems, as, as their name says. She's not afraid to challenge her leadership. The leadership was holding the infrastructure bill for a long time for a vote, and she signed on to letters calling for an immediate vote. And she's also been critical of, of the president on Title 42, which is the law that allows the government to quickly expel immigrants over concerns about public health. She's also been reaching out to the AAPI community, the Asian American Pacific Islander community, which apparently is a big voting block in her district. So she, she feels that she's She's uh, well positioned to to retain her seat. Well, now moving on to the last district, District Four, that is currently held by Stephen Horsford, uh, a Democrat, uh, and that kind of is the entire middle band of the state. Funnily enough, it, it now even after redistricting, it kind of extends into the central part of the Vegas Valley. So it it has points where it's even below the the ninety five in Las Vegas and. Yet it stretches all the way up almost to White Pine County. In, in this district, this is the tightest race, at least in terms of the number of candidates. Uh, Horsford, the only Democrat that filed, we only saw three Republicans file and no third party candidates filed in this race at all, which means some of those third party votes could end up benefiting Republicans. But, you know, Horsford, he's a lock to be in the general election. Like we said, with these other Democrats, he's facing his own sort of battles. Biden's low approval numbers with high inflation. Particularly, and inflation is a big issue for Horsford because it's something that matters a lot to voters in, in District 4. Back in November, there was an Axios story about how inflation was the most searched term in Nevada's Congressional District 4, more than any other congressional district in the country. So it's certainly something that voters care about there. And it's been a focus for the Republicans that are running, trying to run against Stephen Horsford. There are just three of them. Annie Black, who is a, a sitting assemblywoman. Sam Peters, who ran for this district in 2020, but finished second in the Republican primary. And finally, Chance Bonaventura, who is a uh, chief of staff to Michelle Fiore, Las Vegas City Councilwoman. And really so far, we've seen Peters and Black jump out as the front runners in, in terms of fundraising. There hasn't been much in the way of polling, although one poll from the Peters campaign 
did show that there was pretty little name recognition in the district for both Black and Peters. That was back March or April. We both see them occupy similar lanes with aligning themselves with former President Donald Trump, advocating for finishing the border wall, railing against inflation, illegal immigration, rising crime, COVID-19 mandates. And so what we're seeing with a lot of these races, they really are hitting on a lot of those popular issues and Republican views on those issues and, and aligning with the Trump wing of the party. Just wanted to add a note here at the end that Horsford, the current sitting congressman, served from 2013 to 2015 and then lost his seat and then regained it in 2018. Horsford is a very interesting guy. He, he's he's well connected in D.C. He has ties to the White House through the Congressional Black Caucus. He's the number two leader of that group, which is very influential on all things legislation. He had up a, a task force to try to find minority folks to fill jobs in the White House. He too feels that he is pushing for his leadership to, to try to do more on inflation that, as Sean said, is a big deal. He told me housing is a big deal in his district and that it's, he's working on legislation to try to bring down the cost of housing. All right, well, we've gone over a lot of races. Uh, the primaries are coming up. We will have more interviews with candidates uh, who have won the primary. So thank you both for, for chatting with me today. Thanks, Joey. Anytime, man. All right. Well, going from the Congress to the executive branch, we've got a conversation with one of President Biden's cabinet members. That's right. I caught up with Pete Buttigieg, the U.S. Transportation Secretary, for an exclusive interview to talk about the infrastructure bill. Yeah. And just for some context to get you caught up, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, commonly referred to as the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, was signed into law in November of 2021. Uh, And the bill provides federal funds for roads and highways, transit, road safety, rail programs, extended broadband access, clean water, electrical grid renewal, and and a lot more. There's a lot of stuff in it. Um, And Nevada is getting about $3.5 billion, as well as, uh, you know, being eligible to apply for more competitive grants that will be open to various projects uh, for all states. Yeah, that's right. And when you look at how a lot of that money breaks down, and sorry for the number dump here, but it's about $2.7 billion for highways and bridges, so a vast majority of the money, and then another $468 million for public transportation. There's another $300 million-ish for airport infrastructure, and then another $38 million for electric vehicle charging stations, and $18 million for highway safety. Uh, so there's a lot there, and we're going to dig into a lot of it in my interview with Pete Buttigieg. So with that, let's jump over. Infrastructure has such long timelines when we talk about changing it. So what is the day-to-day impact that Nevadans are going to see right now from the infrastructure bill, but in the next year, five years, and so on? Well, the first thing you're going to see is a lot of construction jobs. We're getting to work swiftly on a lot of projects that are putting a lot of people to work. Then over time, of course, you see the projects completed, and then you see benefits in terms of safety, in terms of convenience, in terms of being able to get to where you need to be. The economic impact of infrastructure spending can't be overstated. Just today, we celebrated the beginning of an interchange project that will directly be responsible for 4,600 jobs. And then, again, indirectly, uh, we'll support countless more. We're paying more attention as a country to supply chains than before. Also, the ability to move goods more efficiently, which helps at a time like this when we're fighting inflation, and shipping costs are part of what goes into that. 
supply chains and transportation, I think specifically in Nevada, obviously trucking's huge, the amount of trucks going through Las Vegas, but even the rural highways here. So uh, what's the role of something like the big infrastructure bill in reshaping that infrastructure, making sure that if there are supply chain disruptions, like we saw because of COVID, that they may be mitigated in the future? Our supply chains largely consist of private operations, but they happen over public infrastructure. In other words, the truck driver or the shipping company or the warehouse operator might be a private company, but the roads, the bridges, the ports that they are depending on are often public. We've got to make those public investments so that our infrastructure systems are more resilient. That way, when you have a shock, when you have a disruption, whether it's a pandemic, a climate disaster, or something else, we're better able to adapt to it. A lot of underinvestment from the last 40, 50 years caught up to us in the last couple. We're changing that now with these infrastructure investments. With infrastructure funding, and so much of what the federal government does is greenlighting projects at the state and local levels. What's the role of the Department of Transportation in greenlighting these projects in shaping what the future of transportation looks like? We're launching a number of programs that are specifically dedicated to these aims. For example, the Safe Streets and Roads for All program, which we recently released, that's putting forward a billion dollars for communities to apply to us with ideas that are going to benefit safety there. Sometimes it's something seemingly small like lighting or crosswalks, or it could be the complete redesign of a dangerous interchange, which is a bigger project. When it comes to climate, we have a carbon reduction program now that will go through the states to enable them to fund projects that are going to help. We need to invest in transit. That's going to help on, on, on goals like, like climate and safety, actually, and con- reducing congestion. There's always going to be a back and forth with the states, too. The lion's share of the, of the money goes to the states to decide which things they want to fund. And then our department will select which ones we want to fund in the competitive programs, sending a signal about some of the most promising investments that we think everybody should take a look at. In Nevada, everyone loves to talk about a train to California, but that's something that happens at the state level. It's not necessarily the federal government deciding to build a train. Well, often for something like that to happen, you need to have a partnership that involves states working, sometimes even a a private partner or a purpose-built public sector entity, and us, the, the federal government, there to help. In fact, a lot of the big projects we're seeing right now are a bridge or a rail line or something else that cuts across state lines. And that's why we need to make sure that we're not uh, siloed or bureaucratic in terms of how we go about supporting it. We need to think regionally when it comes to delivering these big pieces of infrastructure. When we're talking about the scope of this change, how would you characterize that? So I'll give you an example. We've got a program like uh, RAISE or Infra. These are programs that had about a billion dollars each in them last year. And we had something like a 10 to 1 ratio between the applications that came in and the ones we were able to fund. And there were many deserving projects that we couldn't support just because there weren't enough dollars to go around. We have considerably more money going into those funds right now. In Nevada, we've seen a a pretty startling rise in the number of of road deaths. And so what's the role in infrastructure of, I guess, sort of looking at a systemic solution to something like road safety and improving that? There's no one piece that's going to solve everything. We need safer roads, safer drivers, safer cars or vehicles. We need safer speeds. We need a better standard of post-crash care. All of those things fit together. But a big part of it is the design of our roads. We can design roads in ways that reduce the conflict points that create collisions, in ways that encourage safer speeds, and in ways that make it likely that if there is a collision, it will not be fatal. Certainly in the West specifically, the reliance on the car has shaped the way that cities are designed. How do you change a car culture with something like the infrastructure bill? I think what you have to do is give people options. 
there are some trips and some situations where a car will always be the right answer. But there are a lot of other situations where people are basically forced to bring two tons of metal along with them when they would be better off if there were an excellent option for public transit. When people have great options for transit and other ways of commuting, they will very often use them. And even people who are in cars will be better off when there's stronger transit because it means less congestion for the people who are on the road. Now, we also need to match this up with choices about how communities grow and develop, making sure we have more transit-oriented development so that when we think about housing, we think about how that housing is going to connect people to opportunity instead of being trapped in a pattern where you see people forced to live impossibly far away from where they work just to be able to afford there and no good way to get there. When you talk about the length of time that these projects take, are there ways to expedite these projects? Well, you have to do it right the first time because we're building pieces of infrastructure could be standing for decades. Often a decision about a bridge or a interchange is a 50, 60, 70 year decision. There is a gravitational pull with major projects for them to take too long, go over budget, and, and veer off task. So we're going to be very focused on how to remove unnecessary duplication or steps in the process while still maintaining a very, very high standard. You're going to see some quick wins, some projects that have been teed up for a long time and they're finally ready to go, things that were underway but they're going to be accelerated, things that, that you will physically notice a difference on within a year. And you'll also see that we're building cathedrals of infrastructure that will take the better part of this decade to deliver, but then that will be there for us for the rest of our lives. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Humberto Sanchez, Sean Galanka, Mark Amade, Danny Tarkanian, Amy Valella, and Pete Buttigieg for being on the show this week. This show is produced and edited by Joey, with additional editing help from Jackie Valley, Michelle Rendells, and Riley Snyder. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen, and email us with questions, comments, concerns, sagebrush beautification techniques, or whatever else is on your mind. Our theme song is from the band People With Bodies, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. Isn't that like an evolutionary thing that cats have learned to mimic the call of the human baby because they know it gives them attention? <laughs> Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure there's scholarship on this issue. <laughs>